Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 54, and we're going to be talking about pleural diseases, continuing our discussion of the lungs. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here at physicianassistantexamreview.com, where you can find all of the... Oop, I'm turning my microphone down and not the music down. I'm still getting used to this new uh, soundboard. I'll, I guess I'll, at some point it'll ease in. It is an absolutely gorgeous day here in the Northeast, um, just a little north of Philly, and it is beautiful fall day, just gorgeous. The sky's clear, the sun is out, and I could not be happier to be here. I'm sorry if it's in the future somewhere and it's dark and dreary where you are, but today here, it is absolutely stunning. Uh, so I want to talk real quick before we jump in to thank everybody out there for your kind words, your uh, encouragement, and so on. One in the form of emails. I'm just getting a flood of things saying just, you know, thanks for all the work I put in and, and how much it's helped and on and on and on. And I really do appreciate that every single one of those. I may not get a chance to respond to them all, but they absolutely uh, are a big deal to me. So I really do appreciate all of that. But what's been <laughs> even more fun lately is hearing from friends of mine or my mother actually down in Florida being treated by a PA who recommends my material for the students who come through and recognizing the the last name and, and realizing after some discussion that uh, it was in fact my mom. And, and that was a lot of fun for her uh, to sort of be recognized in Florida for something that I'm doing. So that was a lot of fun. And I do really appreciate that. Then I recently had a colleague of mine out in Colorado, I think she was in Colorado, visiting some friends and one of their friends happened to be a PA and they got to talking and, and again my name came up sort of at random and it, it was just it was a lot of fun she laughed a lot when she came back to speak with me about it and, and share the story of uh, my name coming up in conversation so that's been a, a ton of fun so thank you so much for all that and thank you for the uh, for paying attention for listening for getting a lot out of the show for keeping this going it all has to do with you and the community to keep the work I'm doing uh, relevant and functional. The feedback really does play a very big part. And that's included with anything that I do that I screw up. Um, I am a, you know, I'm doing this on my own here. And uh, medicine, quite honestly, is not my thing. Um, my thing is breaking things down, making them easy to understand. My thing is learning and test taking. Medicine is something I've studied, something I spent a lot of time with. But uh, for those of you who have been listening to the show for any amount of time, know that I work in surgery. I do not work in medicine. I am a first assistant in the operating room. That's my gig, uh, which gives me a lot of uh, time to see other things, uh, a lot of experience in multi-specialty because that's what I do. Um, I work in ENT. I work in plastics. I work in, uh, I guess, OB, uh, GYN. I work in orthopedics. So I see a lot of the, the surgical outcomes for all of this stuff, but I don't do a lot of the medicine. So anytime you ever find a uh, mistake someplace, please let me know. Please bring it to the attention of the community so that I can fix it. It definitely helps everyone uh, if we do that. So I really do appreciate all of that and your contributions and the reviews on iTunes and all that stuff. It's it just been uh, made this very easy for me to continue to do. Let's just put it that way. All right, so this week we're going to continue with pulmonology. And we're going to, last week we talked about, or last time we spoke about pulmonary uh, restrictive diseases. This episode we're going to talk about pleural diseases. So let's get started with our priming questions. Number one, a biopsy shows non-caseating granulomas. 
What's one restrictive lung disease you should consider? So that's from last time. In biopsy shows non-caseating granulomas. What's one restrictive lung disease you should consider? What physical characteristics are most common in a person with a spontaneous pneumothorax? What physical characteristics are most common in a person with a spontaneous pneumothorax? Will you get a transudative or exudative fluid buildup from heart failure or cirrhosis in the plural spaces? Space, something like that. Will you get transudative or exudative fluid from heart failure or cirrhosis? And we'll get to those answers briefly. Um... That was always something that killed me, the transudative, exudative thing. And for the most part, I just ignored it. And I don't, I think you can get away with that. You're just going to get that question wrong on your exam. It's only one, so it's fine. Um, and that's pretty much how I handled it. Although I came across a way today that it sort of made a little bit more sense and maybe a little clearer. We'll get to that in a little bit. So one thing to understand, we're talking about uh, plural diseases, right? So we're talking about the space, essentially the space outside of the lungs, So for me, the easiest way to think about this, and again, the strict anatomy people out there may find issue with this, but I'm not, this show isn't for strict anatomy. This show is for passing your exam. So I'm going to take a little bit of a pass here. So if you think about it, the lungs sit inside the ribs and inside of a plastic bag inside of the ribs, right? So there's a little space that has a little bit of fluid in it so the lungs can expand and that's an opposite of expand contract, I guess, expand and contract within that space. As they, f as you breathe in, the lungs expand to fill that space, and as you breathe out, the lungs contract and the air moves out. And again, someone's going to email me and tell me that I've got this wrong, but for our purposes, that's that's exactly what I want you to see, is that space around the lungs uh, it has a little bit of fluid in it, and it expands and grows as, the, as you inhale or exhale. So a pleural effusion is excess fluid accumulation in that pleural cavity. The problem with that is it limits the breathing by limiting the ability for the lungs to expand. So if that space is filled with something uh, with more than just a little bit of fluid, the lungs are trapped and they can't expand any further. So some things that can be found in that pleural space is serous fluid, blood, pus is a good one, and then urine is another one I came across. It seems pretty rare and kind of weird, but it was on the list. So serous fluid, blood, pus, and urine were really uh, the, the main causes of a pleural, or main uh, fluids found in a pleural effusion. Clinical presentation, well, if you think about it for just a second, it makes a lot of sense. Dyspnea, cough, chest pain, right? Nothing that really clears that out to separate it from any other uh, lung issue. Lab studies and physical exam findings, you get bronchial breath sounds, egophony, so that's on auscultation, and E sounds like an A. Dullness to percussion, diminished breath sounds. So think of, and fremendus is another good one, and pleural friction rub. I'll go back through those in just a second, but I want you to picture in your head, the easiest one for me to think about is pus. So you figure that space is filled with pus. You have something really nasty going on. And the space between uh, that pleural space, the, the, essentially the sac that the lungs are in, is filling up with something else. Blood's another kind of good one to think about because you can picture it in your head. And that space is being filled with that fluid. Well, when you go to inhale, the lung has nowhere to expand to. So you get more bronchial breath sounds. You get a dullness to percussion because instead 
of sort of an empty space, you have a space filled with pus or blood. So that's where that dullness of percussion comes from and the diminished breath sounds because you're not going to get breath sounds in areas where there should be lung, but now there's pus, right? On chest x-ray, you can see a white area where a lung should be. A CAT scan can show a smaller effusion. A pleural biopsy is how you can diagnose this, which uh, ultrasound-guided thoracentesis. So you get exudative fluid versus transudative fluids come out with that thoracentesis. So transudative fluids is where you get congestive heart failure or cirrhosis are the, are the main causes here. And what happens is the fluid that's in the pleural space gets produced and then reabsorbed over time, right? It's constantly being produced and then reabsorbed, produced and reabsorbed. And there's sort of a balance in there. Things that cause transudative, um, I'm sorry, things that cause a pleural effusion due to issues with the that fluid either not being reabsorbed fast enough or being produced too fast create a transudative fluid in that space. Now, I'm not concerned with it being produced too fast. That's kind of our uh, outlier. That's not really a major issue, although it can, you know it's a possibility, but it's not something we're going to study for your exam. The main issue is reabsorption, which is due to congestive heart failure or cirrhosis because the pressures back up too high for that fluid to naturally be reabsorbed. So in congestive heart failure and in cirrhosis, we get high pressures that cause that fluid to not be reabsorbed and we get a transudative fluid buildup. We get a pleural effusion due to congestive heart failure or cirrhosis because that normal fluid is not being reabsorbed as quickly. Because the, the, yeah, because the pressure is just too high in the vessels around it. I never really got that before, but as I'm reading through it to put these notes together, it made a whole lot of sense to me for the very first time. The exudative fluid is where you have damaged capillaries, or the capillaries are, are damaged pleura, and the capillaries are leaking. So this is something more like pneumonia, malignancies, or pulmonary embolism. You get leaky capillaries. And that's sort of too much fluid is falling out into that pleural space. That's an exudative fluid. Treatment here is antibiotics if appropriate. So if we have a pneumonia, we give them antibiotics. Therapeutic thoracocentesis, which means we just pull that stuff out. Chest tube placement to let it drain and make it so that space can be filled with lung instead of other stuff. And then in some cases, you may do a pleurodesis, which is the obliteration of the pleural space so that it can't fill up with stuff. Next, we have a pneumothorax and tension pneumothorax. These go hand in hand. Um, I'll explain tension pneumothorax in just a second. That's a, basically the same idea, just more severe, which is a lot of issues on the pants, right? Is you have one condition and then you have the more severe condition. It gets a little bit different name, and this one does for a reason that I'll explain shortly. A, no, a pneumothorax is air or gas in the pleural space. So just a second ago, we were talking about fluid in the pleural space, right? We're talking about pus or blood or something uh, keeping the lungs from expanding into that pleural space. Here we've got air, or yes. So that'll also limit the lungs from being able to expand. 
pneumothorax is often referred to as a collapsed lung. You know, I had a buddy in college who had a collapsed lung. Years later, I really found out what that was. A tension pneumothorax, and this is a little bit more complicated, but I need you to picture this in your head. I'm going to read it, and it's not going to make sense, and then I'm going to go over it, and it'll clear it up, right? So just give me a second. Don't, don't bail on me in the middle of this description. A tension pneumothorax is when a one-way valve is created between the lung and the pleural space. That valve allows air to enter the pleural space on inspiration, but does not allow it to escape during exhalation. With each inspiration, the volume of air in the pleural space goes up and is trapped. All right, so picture, picture some kind of trauma where the, the air is now allowed to leak from a lung into the pleural space. So when a person inhales, the, lung, the air comes into the lungs and then leaks a little bit into that pleural space. The problem is as they exhale, a piece of tissue falls over top of that hole. So now the air can't get out. When they breathe in again, that piece of tissue moves away and the air leaks into the pleural space. And then the person exhales, and as they exhale, that flap of tissue falls over that opening, and the air can't escape. So every time you inhale, you're filling the pleural space with a little more air, a little more air, a little more air. You can see how as this builds up over time, it becomes a real problem because as that lung gets pushed over, you feel like you're not getting enough air in because that lung isn't, have, isn't having air in it. You're, you're collapsing this, the pleural space around it. So you breathe in with more force, which forces more air into the pleural space, which makes it so that the lung can't expand as much, right? This is a, um, the problem with this is it is a positive feedback loop. The more you inhale, the less it feels like you're breathing. So you inhale deeper, and then the less it feels like you're breathing. So you inhale deeper and so on, and you create more of a problem and so on and so forth. Um, but it's that one-way valve, that, that flap that keeps the air from moving. So think about a one-way valve. Think about the valves in the heart, if you're having trouble picturing this. The valves in the heart are one-way valves, right? The mitral valve only allows blood to flow from the right atrium to the right ventricle. I'm sorry, the uh, left, <laughs> left atrium to the left ventricle. It's a one-way valve. If stuff starts to go back, you have an incompetent valve, right? That's where you get mitral valve regurgitation when stuff flows back. So this is not a something that should be happened in your lungs for sure. That's a problem. But think about it secondary to trauma is the easiest way for me to think about it. Causes. A primary pneumothorax has no underlying lung disease. So it just is a primary pneumothorax, just like uh, primary hypertension, no secondary diseases. Smoking is a risk factor. And on a test question, this is important, um, you'll see pneumothorax, uh, the characteristics of the, the individual, usually in the test question, will be a young, tall, thin male. So they'll describe him as a basketball player or a wide receiver for the football team, something like that. Um, and what they're saying there is a young, tall, thin male is the most common person to wind up with a pneumothorax. And it just so happens I had a buddy in college who this happened to, and he was, well, I guess we were 18, 19, 20, something in that range, and he was 6'2", something like that, and thin, and he wound up with a collapsed lung, and yes, he smoked. Um, so he is the person that I use to keep this in my head, to link it to, um, because I remember that happening to him, and I remember he just fits the description perfectly. So as soon as I had heard this in school, 
I set up that connection in my own head so I would never forget it. A secondary pneumothorax is a complication of underlying lung disease. Right, so primary under, primaries have no underlying lung disease, secondaries have are a complication of something else. So pretty straightforward, secondary pneumothorax. Um, other lung diseases include COPD, asthma, cystic fibrosis, TB, and the list goes on. A traumatic pneumothorax is secondary to trauma, either sharp or blunt. And a tension pneumothorax is usually created by a traumatic event. Now, I don't even have to go through this with you, but what do you think the clinical presentation of a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax is based on what we've described so far? Think about it for a second. If you have a patient who comes in, what would make you think they may have a pneumothorax? Well, how about acute shortness of breath and acute chest pain? Those seem like reasonable things to consider. Labs and studies and physical exam findings, they will be tachycardic, right? That makes sense. Diminished breath sounds, hyper resonance to percussion. Why are they going to have hyper resonance to percussion? Because that pleural space is filled with air. Instead of with pus, where it's going to be dullness to percussion, if it's filled with air, it's going to be a flat thud, thud, thud. Um, I'm sorry, if it's if it's pus, it's going to be a flat thud, thud, thud. But if it's a if it's filled with air, you're going to get that hyper resonance. You're going to hear that difference. On chest x-ray, you get a visceral pleural line on expiratory film. That's diagnostic. And the pleural air may be seen. On the contra um, with attention pneumothorax, the, the main key term here is a contralateral medial stinal shift, which sounds like a bunch of big words and scared me when I first read it. Contralateral mediastinal shift. What that means is that the mediastinum shifts away from the tension pneumothorax. So if I have um, a punctured lung on my left that is allowing a tension pneumothorax to occur, the pressure builds up so high in that left pleural cavity as I'm inspiring and the air is getting trapped that the whole thing shifts to the right. The mediastinum will shift over to the right. Contralateral, it shifts, mediastinal, contralateral mediastinal shift. The system will move away from that tension pneumothorax, right? Because I'm building up pressure in there. I'm, every time I breathe in, I put a little more air in. It's like blowing up a tire. Um, and you just keep blowing it up and blowing it up and blowing it up. And eventually, you start running out of space, so everything starts to shift over. So that's the contralateral, contralateral mediastinal shift in a tension pneumothorax. What's the treatment? For these conditions, a small primary pneumothorax may be watched and will likely resolve on its own. This is probably about 10 to 15%. A chest tube is a definitive therapy for a large pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax, right? You've got to get the air out. You've got to clear it, especially in a tension pneumothorax. You can't just let it keep building and building and building. It's got to get out. And then again, a pleurodesis at the end if, if necessary. All right, excellent. Um, let's talk for one minute about our study tip for today. One of the things that struck me, and I've been, I don't know if I've just had my ears up for it or I'm hearing it more. It might be one or the other, but either way, I figured I'd share it with you guys. Um, the one really good way to decrease stress, to decrease blood pressure, to make yourself feel better is to get yourself out into nature. I don't Like I said, I don't know if I'm just seeing more of it or if there are more of it. But I've seen a bunch of studies lately that show a direct relationship. In fact, one I was just reading talked about if a park is within, I 
forget what the distance was. It was something like a half a mile from where you live. Um, they could actually track stress and, and high blood pressure would diminish the closer you got to the park uh, just based on where you lived. If you can see trees out a window, if you can hear birds, all these things have a strange impact on the human brain. And the more I study and the more I talk about um, the way your brain works, the more I come to the conclusion that although we think we're in control of our brains and our bodies, they are partially under our control. They are not completely under our control, right? You can't increase your heart rate as you want. You can't decrease your blood pressure as you want. These are things that are built into the system, things that are out of your direct control. Now, you can influence those things, but you can't control them. So things like being out in nature, in, a, in, a, in the woods, in a dramatic environment with that, the sense and the smells and the wind and the air and the, the green colors impact all of those things that help to decrease your stress levels, help to calm you down, that help to clear out your brain. So that study didn't apply directly to me in the sense that I don't live in a city. I live in an area where I'm right now, I'm looking out a window at the trees in my backyard and the grass. Uh, and I, I love the where I live. That's kind of why I decided to do this. But I know some of you are in school and don't get that choice at the moment. So you need to recreate it. You need to create some time outside. You need to create some time where you're looking out windows, where you're getting some sun. All of that is going to tremendously help your stress levels, your retention, your brain power. Um, I know you think you may not have time for it. You kind of don't have time not to do it. It's more important than you think. Uh, get to a position where you can see some nature, where you can get spend a little bit of time outside. Uh, you'll notice probably an immediate impact. But even if you don't spend some time doing it, your brain will be much, much, much happier and easier for you to, to do well at whatever it is you're doing if you're taking care of the things that your body needs. And just like food and water, <coughs> excuse me, um, you definitely need some sunshine, you need some fresh air, you need some green trees around you. All right, so let's get into our uh, answering the questions from the beginning of our discussion today. A biopsy shows non-caseating granulomas. What is one restrictive lung disease you should consider? We didn't talk about this today. We talked about it in the last episode. The answer here is sarcoidosis. What physical characteristics are most common in a person with a spontaneous pneumothorax? What physical characteristics are most common in a person with a spontaneous pneumothorax? This is a tall, thin, young male. Will you get transudative or exudative fluid buildup in the lungs from heart failure or cirrhosis? Is it transudative or exudative that's linked to heart failure or cirrhosis, that pressure buildup? And the answer here is transudative. That's when you're just going to have to figure out a way to memorize, but the background should help you uh, at least a little. So that'll wrap us up for today. We're moving our way through pulmonology, and I think this is a, a great topic for you to spend some time in and, and really focus on and learn. It's a giant part of your exam, uh, and I think it's it's something that's not that hard to get your head around a lot of this stuff. Some of the stuff's a little bit more difficult, but I think this is one you can handle. So definitely spend some time here, go over this stuff, uh, get some time out in nature, spend some time outside. One thing before we wrap it up is... One other thing you should do in addition to going outside is head over to the website, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com and go over there and sign up for the email list. On that email list, I'm constantly putting out great content about how to study, how to get better at things, how to promote yourself, how to do, uh, how to memorize more, how to get more done. 
sometimes I do some content stuff over there, but that's not the majority of what I do. Uh, and it has been, I just get great feedback all the time on it and how much it helps people. So definitely go check that out. I think it's a tremendous resource, uh, something I have a ton of fun doing. I also promote anything new I'm coming out with, any, uh, any of the materials that I have produced, um, all get sent out through the email list. So if you're not on there, the through the podcast here, you get some information, but the email list is really the best way for me to communicate with people. So if you're interested in new things I'm producing, if you're interested in old things I've produced uh, that are of great benefit, definitely go over and sign up for the email list. It's at www.physicianassistantexamreview.com and you will certainly figure out a way to uh, get on that list. There's plenty of opportunities over there. Um, so go check that out. I can't, I can't push that hard enough. I think that's just super important and something I'm having a blast doing. People are getting a ton out of. So definitely go over to the website and check that out. Until then, uh, take care. Any of you taking your exam this week, good luck to you. And please let me know how you do. Take care. Good luck.